Hey guys, today's Sunday and that means it's reading day and I'll be reading from The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, happy holidays. I hope everybody had a great weekend. Here we are, it's Sunday already, December 3rd, right? December 3rd, I'm losing track of time. How was everybody doing today? Okay, I thought I heard everybody say just Marvy. Let me get this going here. I've been pushing the wrong button. Let's see if I got the right button now. Nope, wrong button. I've been doing that lately. Let me get this one off. Okay, there we go. Since I have like three of these things there and it's hard to see them because I'm blind. Anyway, welcome to the show. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner. Let me get adjusted here. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state. And as the spiel goes, that means we can help you no matter where you're at. It may take us a couple days to get to you because California is a huge state. People don't realize it. We've got a little bit of everything. We've got oceans. We've got deserts. We've got mountains. We've got a lot of rural land. So, uh, like I said, it might take us a bit, but we will get to you. And in the case that we can't get to you, uh, we have psychics who can call you. And uh, if it is paranormal, in most cases, they can calm the energy down until, uh, until we can get there. It usually doesn't take us more than one or two days to get there, so don't fret. Anyway, welcome, welcome. Uh, for everybody that's watching from Facebook, I welcome you uh, YouTube tonight and Twitch tonight. We're going out to Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch tonight. Great book we're reading. The dark, uh, the, what is it? The Dark Side of Christmas and The Dark Side of the Holidays. Uh, this book, uh, we, we read it a couple of years ago. It's a really good book. Sylvia Schultz is going to be on the show on Thursday to talk about it and talk about some other books she's written. She's an excellent writer, excellent researcher. So I think you're going to enjoy this. The last time we read, we talked about Krampus. We talked about uh, Belsnickel. You know, we talked about some, some of the monsters of, uh, of the holidays. And uh, now we're kind of cruising in. You know, we just cruised through England. And now we're, we're cruising into the United States for different stories. And it's all legendary stories. That's what it is. But that's what we want to talk about. You know, we talk about ghosts here. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you hear tonight, please be sure to hit that follow button. If you haven't done so already, we're always looking for followers. Uh, please be sure to show us some love. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a heart. Right? I can't see. Can I do this right? I see the kids do this. Oh, well. Somebody I'll learn how to do it. There we go. There we go. There we go. I did it. See? There it is. Give us a heart. <laughs> give us a smile. Uh, and also comment in the chat room. Please comment in the chat room. Because what that does is uh, it's Facebook's uh, master computer sees that up in the FYP, and they put us out to more people. So that would be great if you could do that. Same thing over at YouTube. It works the same way with the comments and the, and showing us some love. And also and also subscribing. If you haven't done so already, come check us out on YouTube. We have more than 800 videos sitting over there. All this show, all different topics. I have uh, about half of them in categories now. So if you just want to read, you know, hear about cryptids, you can go to that file. If you just want to hear Nancy Matz, you can go to that file. So everything, everything has its own file. Anyway, welcome, and again, we're gonna, I'm going to read for about an hour today out of this book. Like I said, it's a really cool book, and I think you'll, you'll enjoy the stories. Some of them are kind of sad, but on the other hand, you know, we're here to hear, you know, this is a paranormal show, so here we are, right? Uh, so we're going to be reading paranormally-themed stories and uh, other types of stories, right? So uh, the spirits of Christmas, the dark side of the holidays. Let me open this up. Give this tablet a few minutes. It's old. It's ancient. And uh, it's just barely kicking right now. And we'll read for an hour out of this out of this terrific book. But like I said, last week when we read, we read all, all the way through Germany and, 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 
France and all those countries, and we talked about some of the legends there. I think we ended in, in England, I think. I'm not positive. I don't remember exactly where we ended, but I know we talked about some of the stuff in England. So, um, yeah. So we're going to be doing that see where we continue. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it. You don't have to, you know, watch me. You could maybe sit on the couch and eat your dinner or, you know, sit by the fire, have some have some spiked eggnog. How's that grab you? Or maybe like, a, like, like, like some friends of mine do. They're in the middle of cleaning house. So they put me in their pocket, carry me around. I don't mind. I like going places. It's all good. So let me open this up and uh, we'll continue with Spirits of Christmas, the dark side of the holidays. See, I got my Santa cup for, full of eggnog. See that? Got my eggnog Santa cup. Santa's waiting. Grogu's back there. He's waiting for Santa. Okay. So it looks like we're still in Europe. So let's talk about this. And it's, I'm going to try and say this. You guys can laugh. Everybody laughs at me anyway. Oled Zero, the Basque giant. Oled Zero is one of the gent. <laughs> Here we go. Oled Zero is one of the gentliac, a race of giants living in the Pyrenees of Spain. In the Basque, well, the Basque. That makes sense. What did I do? I lost him again. Sorry about that. There he goes. Living in the Pyrenees of the Basque region of Spain. There are two legends of Olet Zero's origins. The first is that many centuries ago, a brightly glowing cloud appeared in the sky over the Pyrenees. It was so brilliant that only one person could look directly at it, an old man who was nearly blind. The old man interpreted the vision as a sign that Jesus would soon be born. He asked the local giants to throw him off a cliff so he wouldn't have to live through Christianization. The giants did as the old man asked, but on their way back down the mountain, the giants themselves tripped, fell off the cliffs, and died, all except all at zero. Another legend, one that makes slightly more sense, is that all at zero was abandoned as a newborn in the woods. He was found by a fairy who bestowed on him the gifts of strength and kindness and gave him to a childless couple who lived in the woods. This version of all at zero grew into a good man who would carve wooden toys to give to local children. He worked as a charcoal burner and would tote the handmade toys in a charcoal bag to hand out to the kids. This old zero died saving children from a house fire. When he died, the fairy who had found him as an infant granted him eternal life so he could continue to bring joy to children through his gifts. Neither of these legends, however, does anything to explain the Basque tradition of throwing a sickle down, down the chimney to scare kids who refuse to go to bed. That would scare me. If children don't go to bed on Christmas Eve, they are told that Olet Zero will come into the house, snatch up the sickle, and cut their throats. Wow. Okay. Karen Konkolos, the Turkish Christmas Sasquatch. Oh, here we go. The Karen Konkolos is a tall, hairy, ape-like figure that stalks Bulgaria ah, and Turkey. In Turkey, it appears in the first 10 days of Zimheri, the dreadful cold. In other words, the bitter heart of winter, from December 22nd to January 2nd. In Turkish folklore, the, the Karakankolos imitates the voices of loved ones to lure people outside into the cold night. The Karakankolos hangs out on street corners at night and snags passing strangers to ask them odd questions. If you refuse to answer, the Karakankolos will strike you dead. So it's in your best interest to just go ahead and try to come up with an answer and make sure... The word black is somewhere in your reply. In Bulgaria, the Karen, the, the, the Karen Konkolos are kept at bay by the custom of kukri. This involves dressing up in funny costumes and putting on bells to scare away evil spirits, including the Karen Konkolos. Kali I'm trying, guys, okay? Kali Kantseroy. Okay. Kali <laughs> the holiday demons of Armageddon. I'm trying, you guys. You know how I am. The Kali Conquerors are Greek demons who can vary in appearance. Sometimes they are described as giant hairy demons with a pair of horse legs and bortus. And at other times, they're just described as small black satanic-looking imps. Merry Christmas to you. They are said to eat frogs and other adorable wooden creatures. According to Greek folklore, the Kali Kansavari spend most of the year living underground, sawing at the trunk of the world tree. 
The world tree's trunk connects the earth to the heavens and keeps the heavens from crashing down onto the earth. In other words, the Kali Consroy spend all year long trying to destroy the world. They are usually nearly finished on Christmas Eve, but they are allowed to come up to the earth's surface during the 12 days of Christmas. So at dawn on Christmas Day, the goblins come topside and wreak all kinds of havoc, mayhem, and murder if they can get away with it. Fortunately for the world's continued existence, the damaged trunk of the world tree heals itself completely during the time the demons are away on the surface. On January 6th, the demons return to the underworld and start their destruction of the tree trunk once more. Any child born within the 12 days of Christmas ran the risk, when reaching adulthood, of turning into a colleague Conzero themselves. The antidote for this was to swaddle the baby in wisps of straw and braids of garlic and to singe the baby's toenails, oh, that must, the child's toenails. Oh, that must have felt good. Fortunately, there are ways to protect yourself against the, 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 the Kali Kanzeroi. One is to leave a Yule log burning for all 12 days of Christmas so the demons can enter your house through the chimney. Another method... Oh, can't enter your house through the chimney, sorry. Another method is to toss a pair of smelly old shoes onto a fire. The stink of burning sweat and shoe leather repels the demons. Possibly because it reminds them of the stink of the underworld. Okay? Another way to protect yourself against a murderous Kalikanzaros is to leave a colander of your, on your doorstep. A Kalikanzaros can't count above two. Colander, that's what I said. Because three is a holy number, pronouncing it will make the demon explode. So it sits on the doorstep all night, trying in vain to count the holes in the colander. Oh, that makes sense. And completely forgetting that it wanted to get into, your, into the house to kill you. Werewolves. Not just on the full moon. Werewolves have actually been part of, Christ, of the Christmas horror scene since the Middle Ages. Klaus Magnus, a Swedish folklorist, wrote in the World Encyclopedia of Christmas that werewolves gathered on Christmas night to rage with wondrous ferocity against human beings, attacking their homes and devouring the inhabitants. In Prussia, Livonia, and Lithuania, even in modern times, the belief persists that simply being born on Christmas Day can turn someone into a werewolf. As explained in the 1961 film, The Curse of the Werewolf, being born on December 25th is a mockery of Jesus Christ and therefore deserves punishment. As if being totally screwed on birthday presents isn't punishment enough. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. But Santa is not only super supernatural being out and about during a Christmas season. Oh, he's not the only being, supernatural being. Okay. The darkest time of the year is a perfect place for all kinds of monsters to hide. So you better watch out. There are fates worse than a stocking full of coal. In the bleak midwinter, upsetting things that happen in the dark of the year. The sun sets early these days and many things can hide in the shadows of a long winter's night. The chill in the air can seep right into your bones if you're not careful. So don't wander too far from the safety of the hearth. You never know what might be lurking in the frozen depths of winter. The Christmas Tree Ship The Christmas tree was introduced to America from Germany in the mid-19th century. In the beginning, presents were wired to the branches of the tree instead of being placed underneath it. Small boxes of candy and other treats were used to festoon the tree and it was further decorated with tiny lit candles. By the late 19th century, the custom of decorating a tree for the holidays was firmly entrenched as tradition in America. And by the early 20th century, ship's captains in the Great Lakes were doing a booming business delivering Christmas trees. Schooners would pick up a load of trees from northern Michigan and Wisconsin in mid-November, just before the coming winter storms and ice made travel on Lake Michigan too hazardous. They would bring those trees to towns along the shores of the Great Lakes. In Chicago, most vessels sold trees directly from their berths along the Clark Street docks on the Chicago River. The crew of the schooners would decorate their vessels with electric lights strung from the bow to stern, turning the entire schooner into a floating Christmas ornament. Most of these operators sold their cargo to wholesalers and stores, but other captains invited their customers to come onto the ship and choose their trees from the selection on board. Stepping onto such a boat must have been a true delight. The soft glow and sparkle of the lights, the sweet fragrance of the evergreens, the anticipation of choosing the perfect tree. In addition to the Christmas trees, 
There were wreaths, garlands, and other holiday decorations, often made by the wives and children of crew members to help the family holiday business. One of the captains of these beloved ships was Herman Schuenmann. During his long career as a late-season tree captain, he commanded several schooners that carried Christmas trees to Chicago, including the George Wren, the Mary Collins, and the Bertha Barnes. The Schunemans lived in a German neighborhood in Chicago, on Clark Street. This was a perfect location for a ship's captain, as there were many sailors in the community from which to choose a crew. The Germans and Scandinavians of Chicago were seafaring men, the blood of their Viking ancestors still rich within them. Some of the residents of this neighborhood were third and fourth generation mariners. Schooneman had his share of adventures and misadventures as a Great Lakes captain. His ship, Mary Collins, sank when it crashed into the shoreline in Upper Michigan. Since it sank in shallow waters, all on board were rescued. Parentheses, running into shore kind of makes Captain Schooneman sound like a complete idiot, but he really wasn't. What happened was this. At Thompson, Michigan, the harbor master kept a light burning on the south dock to help navigation. The pilot on the Mary Collins said, quote, there's Thompson, and steered straight for it, assuming he was headed into the harbor. But this particular light happened to be a kerosene lamp shining out of an upstairs window in a log cabin, one half mile east of Little Harbor, Michigan. The Mary Collins was indeed wrecked on a limestone shore. But since the water was shallow, everyone on board was saved. In parentheses. Misadventures aside, Schuenman was an experienced mariner and spent over 50 years sailing, sailing Lake Michigan. Somewhere along the line, Schuenman was given the affectionate nickname Captain Santa. He came by the jolly title honestly. His slogan was, The Christmas tree ship, my prices are the lowest. Not the catchiest of advertising phrases, perhaps, but what he lacked in originality, he made up for in generosity. Christmas trees sold for between 50 cents and one dollar, and many Chicagoans celebrated their holiday with a treat purchased from Captain Santa. But Schooneman also gave trees away to poor folks on the waterfront to the city's churches, to the waterfront and to the city's churches. The newspapers got wind of this habit of Schooneman's, and reporters looking for a heartwarming story for the Christmas season wrote articles on the captain's charity. Schooneman was intensely proud of the nickname he'd earned over the years. He clipped the articles out of the papers and kept them safe in his wallet. In addition to making sure everyone who boarded his ship went away with a tree, Captain Santa made sure they had a hearty meal as well, served on board the vessel. These meals often included roast boar and venison as the main course. Herman Schumann, in his role as Captain Santa, was in good company. His older brother August was also a Christmas tree ship captain, working from 1876 to 1898. August, too, had earned an affectionate nickname for his diligence in bringing trees to the people of the Chicago. Christmas Tree Schooneman lost his life when his schooner sank in November 1898 on a run from Michigan to Chicago, carrying a load of pine, spruce, and balsam. August and Herman had been exceptionally close, and Herman very much admired his older brother. August's loss only made Herman more staunchly determined to carry on the family tradition. In fact, not two, week at, two weeks after August's ship, the S. Thou, was lost. Herman made an extra run up to Michigan for a load of trees to replace the cargo that was now at the bottom of the lake. He knew the people of Chicago wanted their trees, and he knew he was the man to provide them. Herman Schooneman couldn't afford to buy any of his schooners outright. For that matter, neither could August. There was no shame in this. Most of the sailors that worked the Great Lakes were not in a position to own their own vessels and it was common practice for captains to band together and buy shares in a schooner. In 1910, the Schooneman bought a share of the Ralph Simmons, and by 1912, his interest had grown to one-eighth of the ship's value. The ship had been built specifically for Lake Michigan's lumber trade and was named for his major financial backer, Ralph Simmons, founder of the Simmons Mattress Company. The Ralph Simmons spent her entire life as a lumber ship, over the years, she carried shingles, lathes, planking, railroad ties, telephone and telegraph poles, and cedar posts. The Ralph Simmons was purpose-built to serve as a lumber-hauling ship, but she was nearing the end of her useful life. Built in 1868, Schooner was already 42 years old when Schooneman acquired his share in her. That didn't bother him in the least. 
admit she was a bargain. An older ship was not necessarily a liability in the lumber trade. In fact, Schooneman had built his career on buying shares in older vessels and squeezing the last bit of use out of them. Lumber was a popular cargo for, those, for these older ships for several very practical reasons. If the ship was leaky, lumber was a cargo that wouldn't be damaged if the ship took on water. Even Christmas trees wouldn't be bothered by a slosh or two of lake water. Also, the inherent buoyancy of the wood may have helped these schooners make port safe, safely in a fierce storm. As for the ship's age, well, what better way to use a ship in their declining years than bringing Christmas trees and happiness to hundreds of people every year? Partial ownership of the Ralph Simmons was important to Schooneman for another reason. The captain made his living on the lake, but in the off-season, especially in the winter, when the Great Lakes were lashed with storms, he, like many other lake boat captains, turned to other businesses to supplement their income. In 1906, Schooneman owned, among other businesses, a saloon. Unfortunately, now all these businesses turned to profit, and the saloon forced Schooneman into bankruptcy. On January 4, 1907, he filed, and the debts to his creditors amounted to over $1,300. Schooneman looked to his other business to bolster his finances. Herman owned 240 acres of woodland land in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where he harvested trees. The Schooneman spent part of every fall, about eight weeks or so, in their woods, selecting and filling the most beautiful of their trees. Schooneman also bought trees from Michigan locals, including Chippewa Indians living along Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. The Christmas tree trade also provided late-season employment to area lumberjacks. Parentheses. This bolstering of the local economy continued when Schooneman reached Chicago. He would set up sewing machines on the deck of his ship, and hire 50 women to make wreaths and garland from the boughs that fill the hold. These 50 women would, by Christmas Eve, have made over 60,000 feet of garland. In parentheses. By 1912, Schooneman was one of the last Christmas tree merchants who still shipped his trees by schooner. Railroads were regularly used to transport trees by this time, and Captain Schooneman was not unaware of the benefits of shipping trees by railway. In fact, that's how he got the trees from the forest to the shoreline to load his ships. And Barbara Schoenemann, who would often take the train home to Chicago as Herman left Thompson to wait for him at home. But Schoenemann felt that he was honoring the tradition his German neighbors and so many others had come to enjoy. The romance of stepping onto the gently rocking deck of a ship to choose their Christmas tree for that year. Plus, the wind to fill the bellying white sails of the schooner was absolutely free. On November 22, 1912, the Ralph Simmons left Thompson, Michigan, loaded with 5,500 evergreens for the final voyage of the season. November had the reputation of being a bad month for travel on the Great Lakes, but a Christmas tree merchant had little choice but to chance the trip. There was a storm brewing that was predicted to hit sometime during the week, during the week-long voyage, but all in all, November 1912 had been relatively quiet weather-wise. Schooneman had a good reason for taking a chance in making this last Christmas tree run. Snow had already fallen on the tree farms in Michigan and Wisconsin. Other lake captains were spooked by the possibility of nasty weather. Schooneman hoped that this combination, that this combination, leery competitors and general shortage of trees, would lead to a huge profit for the year and solve his money troubles. So at noon, the Ralph Simmons sailed from Thompson Harbor crammed with trees. Reports later varied as to how many men were on board, in addition to the captain and crew. The ship carried several passengers. Schooneman had kindly invited some lumberjacks to hitch a ride with him back to Chicago to celebrate the holidays with friends and family. None of the men would live to see that Christmas. The bad omens had started earlier that day. While loading the ship, the sailors noticed that rats were deserting the ship. Parentheses. Some recalled that rats had bailed out of the ship in Chicago, too, as she was headed up to Michigan. End parentheses. The Ralph Simmons was scheduled to set sail on a Friday, bad juju for any voyage. And the horseshoe, nailed to the davit post, had worked itself free of one of its nails and was now hanging with the tines pointing straight down, letting all the luck run out. That night, a storm overtook the schooner. Knowing that the lashing winds and cresting waves were a concern, Schooneman sent two sailors up to the deck 
to check the, to check that the trees there were securely tied down. A rogue wave slipped over the deck, and the two men were knocked overboard, along with some bundled trees and a small boat. Shuneman had little time to mourn the loss of his two crew. Since the schooner was slightly lighter, he thought he could make landfall. He steered for the safety of Bailey's Harbor, but the storm was growing more furious and deadly by the moment. Spotters at two United States life-saving stations, an antique version of the modern Coast Guard, saw a ship they thought was the Ralph Simmons on November 23rd. It limped past Kewanee, Wisconsin, its distress flags flying, its sails and rigging crusted with ice. The crew at Kewanee saw it first and telephoned the crew at Two Rivers to, to the south. The rescuers at Kewanee only had rowboats, and by that time the storm was a fierce gale. They knew it would have been impossible, suicidal even, for them to brave the tempest. The station at Two Rivers had a gasoline-powered surfboat and was better equipped to handle a rescue attempt in the teeth of the storm. But by the time the powerboat motored out to look for the ship, the Ralph Simmons was nowhere to be seen. The crew of the rescue boat, led by Captain George Sogue, could see nearly to, to, to Kiwani, but there simply was nothing to see. The rescue boat ran eight miles north, then headed out into the lake for an hour. They found nothing. No ship, no signals, no wreckage. By the time the snow was starting to fall more heavily, by this time the snow was starting to fall more heavily. Soon it was snowing so hard, they could hardly see from one end of their 30-foot-long boat to the other. One of the rescue crew, Oscar Anderson, later recalled their fear of being run over by the very ship they were looking for if she happened to rise up before the wind. So the little powerboat headed back to two rivers, its crew heartbroken at the failed rescue. The storm grew ever stronger. Several ships were lost besides the Ralph Simmons. The storm that battered the Great Lakes, starting in the late night hours of November 22, 1912, did not spare land either. The storm morphed into a blizzard with high winds. The winds did severe damage in Chicago, blowing in windows and stripping shingles off roofs. A Lincoln Avenue streetcar narrowly escaped being crushed when a sign 50 feet high was blown off a building on Fullerton Avenue. A few days later, a bottle washed up on the lake shore at Sheboygan. It had been corked with a small chunk of pine wood. Inside the bottle was a rolled up piece of paper bearing the last sad message from Captain Santa. Quote, Friday, everybody goodbye. I guess we are all through. During the night, the small boat washed overboard. Involved, and Steve lost too. God help us. End of quote. Another note was found washed ashore near the end of July 1913. This one was reportedly from Captain Charles Nelson, the first mate of the Ralph Simons. Simons. It read, quote, November 23rd, 1912. These lines were written at 10.30 p.m. Scooter Ralph Simmons, ready to go down, about 20 miles southeast of Two Rivers Point, between 15 and 20 miles offshore. All hands lashed in one line. Goodbye, Captain Charlie Nelson, end quote. Both of these notes, it must be said, may be hoaxes. As much as people wanted closure, it's difficult to imagine a sailor fighting for his life against blowing wind and frigid water, his fingers crusting with freezing snow, taking the time to scribble a note, stuff it into a bottle, after finding an empty bottle, whittle a cork out of pine, and chuck it overboard. Besides, the second note, the one attributed to Captain Nelson, sounds awfully specific. Hoaxes or not, these possible final grabs of communication with solid land were the last real information anyone would have about the fate of the Ronald Simmons for many years. Christmas trees washed up on the shoreline for years after the wreck. Trunks from some of these trees were sliced into rounds and turned into ornaments. A Christmas tree was painted in the middle of each circle with the words Ralph Simmons, 1868-1912, carved below. It's fitting that instead of being enjoyed for just a single season, some of these trees Captain Santa had been bringing home on his final voyage now served as family heirlooms living well beyond one holiday and being enjoyed for countless more years. In 1923, a fisherman working near Two Rivers, Wisconsin, brought up Shuneman's wallet wrapped in oilskin in his net. Quote, uh, parentheses, oddly enough, the fishing boat whose net snagged Captain Santa's wallet was named the Reindeer. In parentheses. 
Inside the wallet were business cards, an expense sheet, and a newspaper clipping about Captain Santa. On Friday of the same week, the wallet was found. Captain Manville Lafond of the Fishing Tug Monitor brought in a much grislier relic in his nets, a human skull. It was the third he'd found, and that's not counting the entire skeleton he saw tangled in his nets once. The skeleton fell to pieces as the net was being hauled aboard, and the bones sank beneath the waters again. The full story of the fate of the Ralph Simmons wasn't known until 54 years later. On October 30, 1971, a diver from Milwaukee named Kent Felrichard discovered the wreck in 165 feet of water, 12 miles northwest of Two Rivers. An archaeological study of the wreck painted a clear picture of the schooner's final hours. The windlass was in the middle of being prepared to lower the port side anchor. Something went wrong, and the crew was trying to hold the schooner into the wind by dropping the anchor. But given the depth of the water and the amount of chain, it would have been impossible for the ship to anchor safely in the lake. It's also known that the Ralph Simmons was dangerously overloaded with trees. Some reports indicate that the schooner was riding very low in the water when she left Thompson Harbor, laboring under the weight of the trees in her hold and on her decks. It's quite likely that the estimated eight-foot-tall pile of trees on her deck destabilized the schooner and led to a domino fall of effects that ended with the vessel sinking. When the ship was found, archaeologists noticed right away that the navigational wheel was gone. They wondered what had become of it. After all, it weighed 400 pounds. Parts of it were steel and parts cast iron. It couldn't have gone far from the wreck site. When the wheel finally did turn up, dragged to the surface in a fishing net, one of the mysteries of the wreck was finally solved. It had long been theorized that the actual wreck was caused by the bundles of trees on the deck getting encrusted with snow and freezing like spray and turning into blocks of solid ice, which then tore loose and turned into deadly battering rams, ripping the wheel off and leaving the ship with no steering capabilities. When the wheel was finally discovered, the restorers found that many of the handles of the wheel were catastrophically bent, with some missing altogether. The truth was revealed at last with a new theory. The mizzen mast driver boom, the support for the mainsail, had snapped its rigging, then swung wildly until it crashed into the wheel. People had wondered for years why the Ralph Simmons didn't put in at Two Rivers and why the rescue boat from that station had never been able to locate the foundry ship. The reason Captain Schoenman didn't steer for safety was because he couldn't steer for safety. As Rochelle Pennington, author of the historic Christmas tree ship, put it, Once the wheel was gone, the Simmons was fighting for its life with both hands tied behind its back. Divers to the wreck of the, of the Simmons say that the trees are still stacked in the hold. If you look closely, you can see that the trees lower down and the piles still have their needles attached. The loss of the Ralph Simmons marked the beginning of the end for the schooners in the Christmas tree trade. These lovely, graceful vessels were the last survivors of the Golden Age of Sail. Schooners like the Ralph Simmons were a dying breed, already being pushed aside by the march of progress in steam technology. By 1920, the Christmas tree trade on the Great Lakes was all but extinct. But here is the amazing thing about this whole story, even better than August Schumann being called Christmas tree Schumann or Herman picking up the nickname Captain Santa. With the tragic loss of both men, August in 1898 and Herman in 1912, the women and their families carried on their legacies. Barbara Schuenman was determined that her husband's good work should not die with him. W.C. Holmes, who owned a Chicago shipping company, was a good friend of the family, and Herman had been commanding his ships for years. Holmes donated the schooner, Oneida, for Barbara and her daughters to use to sell trees just a couple of weeks after the Ralph Simmons was lost. Herman's oldest daughter, Elise Elsie, was selling trees from the deck of the Oneida when she was interviewed by the Chicago Inter-Ocean newspaper on December 11, 1912, when the news of the sinking ship was still fresh. Before setting off from Thompson, Herman Schumann had sent two railroad cars of ships to Chicago. These, in addition to the trees washed up on shore, represented the stock which Barbara and her daughter sold that bleak Christmas of 1912. Some of the trees that washed ashore were brought to Chicago, and sales of those trees were used to benefit the families of the sailors lost 
when the Ralph Simmons went down. The next year, Barbara and her daughters, who were once again on their property in the Upper Peninsula, okay, they chartered another boat, appropriately named Fearless, and carried on the Schumann's legacy. And one year after the loss of her husband, the Chicago Daily News interviewed Barbara Schumann for their November 28, 1913 edition, as she was preparing a loaner schooner with Christmas trees. Barbara made her desires clear. We'll load the trees on it and tie up at the old dock, and our customers will come to us as they have in former years. They know where to find us. The Rouse is gone, and her captain is gone, and the crew is gone. But Christmas will find the survivors still on deck, and Chicago will have her Christmas trees as long as the showman last. It was a promise Barbara kept. She celebrated her last Christmas in 1932. Pastor Jacob Priester wrote his tribute. She is here to help bring joy to this year, like never before. She dispenses Christmas trees. You all know her. It is good Mother Schumann, the widow of ill-fated Captain Schumann, the Christmas shipman, who never returned to shores. But with his great cargo, but when his great with his great cargo Christmas trees that went down in the deep on that terrible night of storm. And since then, Mother Schumann has felt the urge to carry on. Barbara Schumann passed away in June 1933. The Chicago Tribune printed her obituary, which included this comment, quote, Mother Shuanam was known and loved by thousands and hundreds of thousands throughout our great metropolis. After Barbara died, her daughters, Elsie, Hazel, and Pearl, continued to carry on the business for a few years more. The Christmas tree ships no longer sailed like Michigan, and the trees were brought in by rail. But the store at 1641 North LaSalle Street, quaintly and poignantly named Captain and Mrs. H. Schumann's daughters, still did a brisk business during the holidays. The three sisters lived in a grand old Victorian house that had been divvied up into separate flats, just a short walk across the street and down the block from their store. And the oldest daughter, Elsie, also picked up a nickname bestowed upon her by the grateful people of Chicago. An accomplished sailor in her own right, she proudly carried on her family's legacy of bringing trees to the city. By the time she was married in 1917, Elsie had become known as the Queen of Christmas Trees. She and her husband, Arthur Roberts, were married in a church right next to a huge Christmas tree, accomplished, okay, hang on, there we go, Elsie herself had brought from the woods. Over the years, the disappearance of, Ralph, of the Ralph Simmons spawned legends that grew larger with time. Many sailors on Lake Michigan swore they saw the doomed schooner. Her sails and rigging crusted with ice, still trying in vain to complete the trip to Chicago. Rochelle Pennington, author of the author of the historic Christmas tree ship, writes of a conversation she had with Joyce Fippen. Mrs. Fippen was a retired school teacher who lived in a small stone cottage on the shore of Lake Michigan, right next to the water. She said she had seen the Phantom ship twice, once at dusk, once at night. She described the ship as just sort of there, floating in the air. Hazy, hazy, ice-laden, misty, and white. Barbara Schuneman, Herman's widow, was laid to rest in Chicago's Acacia Park Cemetery. Visitors to her gravesite claimed to have smelled the distinctive scent of evergreens in the air. The story of the wreck of the Ralph Simmons holds a special place in the lore of the Great Lakes. Other ships were lost during the storm on November 1912, which many lake captains swore was the worst snowstorm they'd ever seen. But the Ralph Simmons was special. It was the Christmas tree ship, piloted by the beloved Captain Santa. The crew of the ship was willing to risk their lives to bring holiday cheer to the people of Chicago, even to people who couldn't afford to buy a Christmas tree. The legend and legacy of the Christmas tree ship lives on even today. Every year, the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Mackinac makes the journey from northern Michigan to Chicago bringing a load of Christmas trees to deliver to the city's poor. Cool. Next, the black and blue boys. Let me have some, some eggnog. Okay. Drinking in style in Seneca. The black and blue boys. Winters in Wisconsin are long and brutal, and the winter of 1840 was particularly bone-chilling. 
not only because of the bitter cold, but also because it was in 1840 that a bar fight took the lives of two teenage boys and the legend of a terrifying haunting began. Ridge Road in southern Wisconsin was a 25-mile stretch of old military trackway. The mining communities of Blue Mounds and Dodgeville sat at each end of the road. Ridgeway, another mining camp, sat roughly in the middle between the two towns. At least a dozen saloons operated along Ridge Road in those days. Rowdies from the mining camps at both ends of the road frequented the taverns. Those were rough places, and rough men hung out in them. Bar fights were inevitable, with beatings, knifings, robberies, and even murder being commonplace. One winter night in 1840, two young men, barely into their teens, had the sheer bad luck to stumble into one of these bars, a dive called the Killips Saloon. They discovered far too late that it was a clubhouse for thugs and bullies, and they were not welcome there. The boys had been out in the bitter winter night. No one knows why. When they saw the welcoming yellow glow of firelight through the tavern's windows, they hurried to get into the warmth of the crude building. Anything, even the dubious welcome of a saloon, would be better than suffering a moment longer in the biting cold outside. They found a welcome, but not the one they'd hoped. Instead of stopping at an inn for weary travelers, the boys had walked into one of the savage bars on Ridge Road, a place where life was cheap. The boys had been there just a short time, hardly long enough to melt the snow off their boots when the trouble started. One of the local tough guys pretended to take offense at the little pipsqueaks hanging out in his bar. The tavern was full of rowdy, drunk, belligerent miners. Barely any excuse was needed for a bar fight. The two teens were terrified at the mayhem they caused just by trying to get warm on a freezing winter night. Cowering in terror, they were utterly unprepared for the violence that raged about them. Sensing the weakness, the bullies attacked. One miner grabbed the younger boy, punched him in the stomach, then brought a knee up into his face when the boy doubled over. Frantic with pain, blood streaming down his face, the boy swung wildly. A lucky hit smacked his attacker in the eye, smacked his attacker in the eye, and the, sh and, the th and the thug shrieked with rage. He grabbed the boy by his shirt front and threw him into the huge fireplace. Yikes. The boy stumbled and fell, landing in the middle of the brightly burning logs. Flames snapped, and the glowing red logs came apart in a shower of sparks under the boy's weight. His clothes caught, and he was burned alive. The older brother stood stunned for a moment. His hands clapped over his ears to drown out the sounds of his brother's screams his eyes wide open with helpless horror. Then he realized his own danger. He ducked and weaved to escape his attackers and made it to the door just ahead of the grasping hands. He yanked open the door and stumbled out into the darkness, sobbing. A few days later, his dead body was found in a nearby field. Sadly, he had escaped the bar fight only to freeze to death that night. No one ever found out who the boys were, or why they'd been wandering Ridge Road that night. But the boys took their revenge, and soon everyone knew their tale, if not their identities. From 1850 to 1910, the two murdered teens made Ridgeway their hellish home. The phantoms were so dangerous that soon people began to travel in groups, fearing to be alone on the road after dark. The boys didn't care who they attacked in their hunger for vengeance. No one was safe, and those that they did attack at night were lucky if they survived the encounter. The murdered boys were fiendishly inventive in their attacks. They appeared in a wide variety of shapes. They took the form of a herd of pigs, or a flock of sheep, or a pack of dogs. Sometimes they took human form, manifesting as a man with a whip, headless men, women young and old, even as themselves, burnt black and frozen blue. One brother even attacked the man in the form of a ball of white-hot flame. Even with these vicious attacks being common knowledge, some skeptics dismissed the idea that the murder boys were behind them. John Lewis was one of those who scoffed at the idea of savage ghosts. He was a butcher by trade, and he was known throughout the state as a champion wrestler. He earned the nickname The Strangler because of his fondness for chokeholds. 
John Lewis was a fearsome grizzly bear of a man, and he was not going to be cowed by figments of other people's imaginations. Lewis was headed home one night after helping a neighbor with his butchering when he heard when he had this encounter. Hang on a second. When he had okay. Oh, here we go. With the Ridgeway Ghost. According to an article in the New York Times published on December 7, 1902, Lewis was crossing a field when he was confronted by a dark, shapeless mass that moved to attack him. A neighbor later found Lewis half delirious, propped up against a field stone wall. He said he had been thrown up into the air and whirled around, as though he'd been sucked in the middle of a tornado. The neighbor helped Lewis home, half carrying the big man. A few hours later, Lewis died. To the end, he swore that he'd been victim of a supernatural attack. In 1910, the town of Ridgeway caught fire and was largely destroyed in the blaze. Some say the sightings around, as though he'd, whoop, wrong one, sorry. I hate when it does that. The sightings of the Ridgeway ghost ended after the 1910 fire. Others claim that the hauntings have continued and that they follow a cycle of roughly 40 years, escalating in the 1890s, the 1930s, the 1970s. Sightings are reported as late as 1993. The two teenage ghosts may still be out there, waiting for an unsuspecting traveler to happen by. Okay, cool. Ghost Rider of the Revolution. The winter winds whistled around the cabin in the South Carolina woods, but inside the snug home, all was well. The cabin's owner, David Miles, was a Quaker and held himself and his family aloof from the fighting that raged around them. The Revolutionary War was a necessary evil, but Miles prayed it would not touch his two teenage children. 19-year-old Charity, David's daughter, heard the light hoofbeats of a horse just outside the rear of the cabin. Her heart leapt, and she jumped up from her chair, leaving her knitting forgotten on the table. A sharp knock on the door brought her father and brother to their feet as well. Charity eased the door open just a crack. Young Henry Galbraith, a scout with the Continental Army, stood outside. Charity grabbed his hand and pulled him into the safety of the cabin. Tears, both of joy and of worry, stood in Charity's eyes. Henry, I almost wish you hadn't come. It's too dangerous. You can't keep coming here, not with General Tarleton's Redcoats patrolling the area. You know I love you, but you must stay away. Henry Bennett kissed Charity. I can't, love. I have to see you or I'll go mad. Besides, no one knows these woods better than I do. I'll be safe, I promise. David Miles pulled a chair close to the fire. And the young patriot plumped down into it with a grateful smile. Henry enjoyed the company of Charity's family and, loved, and he loved Charity. After this war was over, after the Americans won their freedom, he'd make Charity his wife. Charity poured four mugs of chicory coffee, and Henry wrapped his cold fingers around his mug, happy for the warmth. He gazed up at Charity. My love, I'll come back for you. One year from now, whether or not the war is over, I will come back. Charity nodded. I'll wait for you, Henry. David took a sip of his coffee, then stiffened. Over the sounds of the wind, he'd heard the founding of hooves, horses' hooves. Several of them. The Tories were out searching for the young scout. Henry tossed his coffee into the fire, and Char Charity hastily dried the mug on her apron and threw it into the cabinet. Her brother rushed to the back of the cabin and, with the skill of long practice, removed a plank from the wall near the floor. Henry squirmed through the opening into the backyard, where his horse waited. Scarcely had Charity's brother replaced the board when a barrage of knocks came on the cabin door. Rough voices called out, Open up in the name of the King George! Gunbutts smashed against the door, which sagged inwards under the blows. Three Tories burst into the cabin. Their muskets held at the ready. Where is he? One of the soldiers demanded. David Miles, still seated by the fire, closed his Bible and calmly took a sip of coffee. I have no idea who you might be looking for. My children and I are the only ones here. A flurry of fading hoofbeats, and the soldiers knew their prey was gone. They mounted up and thundered after the scout, but the thickly falling snow hid his tracks well. The fighting dragged on. Weeks turned into months, 
with no word from Henry. Even the Continental soldiers who sometimes passed through had no news of him. One night, Charity was sitting up late after her father and brother had gone to bed. Henry's words still echoed in her heart. One year from now, I will come back. It hadn't been, yet been a year, but she longed to see Henry again, no matter the danger. She reached for her shawl and stepped out of the cabin. She felt oddly drawn to the edge of the clearing. At the edge of the woods, a strange bluish light began to glow. Raising her hand to her eyes to shield them, Charity saw movement in the light. A rider came galloping out of the woods. He was dressed all in black, the better to blend in the shadows. He was riding hard, intent on some urgent business. He didn't stop at the cabin, but urged his excuse me, but urged his foam-flecked horse onward. The rider hadn't even glanced at Charity, but she knew him anyway. At that moment, she knew Henry Galbraith was dead. Five long years passed. The revolution begun in hope, ended in victory. David Miles and his family gave thanks that the terrible war was over. One December night, five years after they'd last seen Henry, the family was once again enjoying a cozy winter evening together. Charity still carried a flame of hope in her heart. Maybe she'd been wrong about the identity of the ghostly rider. Maybe the ragged rider and his sweating horse had been a trick of the moonlight. She put on a new dress and joined her father and brother, hoping that the evening, that that evening, Henry would keep his promise and return to her at last. The cabin door slammed open and a shining light filled the room. Henry Galbraith stood in the brilliance. His army uniform hung in tatters from his broad shoulders and his eyes were raw sockets in his haggard face. His ghostly gaze fell in charity and she cowered in terror in spite of herself. Then, just as suddenly as he appeared, the specter was gone. Charity Miles never did marry. She never found out for certain what happened to her Henry either. Being a scout, his whereabouts were often unknown. It was assumed that he had been killed in battle. The cabin in which the Goldberg, in which Henry Goldberg precious lived to Charity Miles is long gone. But legends say that when winter winds blow cold on a December night and the snow falls thick, a ghostly horse and rider still gallop through the woods, forever carrying news for Washington's army. Vermont Resurrections One of the most disturbing stories in this part of the book has no ghosts at all. I think you'll find that the creep factor more than makes up for the lack of spooks. An article appeared on the front page of the Montpelier Argus and Patriot on December 21, 1887, titled A Strange Tale. The article was written by a contributor whose byline was noted only as AM. The events in the article took place in a small mountain town about 20 miles from Montpelier. Vermonters are a frugal people, and this particular bunch had discovered a way to ease the hard times of winter by reducing the number of mouths that needed to be fed during the cold, cruel months. They developed a technique that was part of Vermont folk medicine, part Yankee thrift and part outright creepy weirdness. A.M. wrote that the following tale was that was exited from his Uncle William's diary. January 7th. I went on the mountain today and witnessed what to me was a horrible sight. It seems that the dwellers there who are unable either from age or other, other reason to contribute to the support of their families are disposed of in the winter months in a manner that will shock the one who reads this diary unless that person lives in that vicinity. I will describe what I saw. Six persons, four men and two women. One of the men, a cripple, about 30 years old, the other five, past the age of usefulness, lay on the earthly floor of the cabin, drugged into insensibility with members of their family, while members of their family are gathered about them in apparent indifference. In a short time, the unconscious bodies were inspected by several old people who said, they're ready. They were then stripped of all their clothing except a single garment. Then the bodies were carried outside and laid on logs exposed to the bitter cold mountain air. The operation having been delayed several days for suitable weather. It was night when the bodies were carried out and the full moon occasionally obscured by flying clouds shone on their upturned ghastly faces and a horrible fascination kept me 
by the bodies as long as I could endure the severe cold. Soon the noses, ears, and fingers began to turn white, and the limbs and face assumed a tallow look. I could stand the cold no longer and went inside, where I found the friends in cheerful conversation. In about an hour, I went out and looked at the bodies. They were fast freezing. I could not shut out the sight of those freezing bodies outside, neither could I bear to be in darkness. But I piled on the wood of the cavernous fireplace and seated on a shingle block, past the dreary night, terror-stricken by the horrible sights I had witnessed. A common grave had been dug for the bodies before the ground had frozen. The corpses were placed side by side on a bit of straw in a ten-by-six-foot wooden box. When they were judged ready, the helpers placed, the cloth, placed cloths over the faces of each corpse and packed more straw around the bodies. The wood lid was fastened securely onto the box. The box was then lowered into a pit and covered. A layer of straw was put down in a layer of branches to keep scavengers away from the bodies. In the weeks that followed, the Vermont winter set in with its accustomed fury. Snowdrifts up to 20 feet high buried the sleepers for the next five months. January 8th. We shall want our bed to plant our corn next spring, said a youngish-looking woman, the wife of one of the frozen men. And, if you want to see them resuscitated, you come here about the 10th of next May. The narrator was sickly fascinated by the whole process, and when spring rolled around, or grinning up as they call it in Vermont, he just couldn't stay away. He had to come back to see the grisly results of the winter's experiment. May 10th. The men commenced work at once, some shoveling away the snow, and others tearing away the brush. Soon the box was visible. The cover was taken off, the layers of straw removed, and the bodies, frozen and apparently lifeless, lifted out and laid on the snow. Large troughs made of hemlock logs were placed nearby, filled with tepid water, into which the bodies were separately placed, with the heads slightly raised. Boiling water was then poured into the troughs from kettles hung on poles nearby, until the water in the trough was as hot as I could hold my hand in. Hemlock boughs, hemlock boughs had been put in the boiling water in such quantities that they had given the water the color of wine. After lying in this bath about an hour, color began to return to the bodies, when old hands began rubbing and chafing them. This continued about, not, about another hour, when a slight twitching of the muscles of the face and limbs, followed by audible gasps, showed that life was not quenched and that vitality was returning. Spirits were then given in small quantities and allowed to trickle down their throats. Soon they could swallow, and more was given to them when their eyes opened, and they began to talk and finally sat up in their bathtubs. They were then taken out and assisted to the house, where after a hearty dinner, they seemed as well as ever, and in no wise injured, but rather refreshed by their long sleep of four months. It's not clear whether this was an isolated incident, or if this was something that people did on a regular basis. The story was revisited for Vermont Magazine in the 1930s. Editor Judson Hale famous for his tales of New England, wrote that he spoke with a Vermont farm couple that had heard of the macabre practice. Surely folks of the 20th century wouldn't put any, any stock in such a wild tale. Hale asked if the couple, the couple if either of them really believed the frozen death story. Certainly do, the husband replied promptly. Then the wife added, the only part I doubt is the thawing out. Okay. Frozen Charlottes. I'll be the first to admit that dolls, especially antique dolls, can be really unnerving. But there is a certain Victorian-era doll that has a backstory that takes creepiness to the next level. These dolls were made from one piece of unglazed porcelain, rather than the usual bis bisquet limbs and cloth bodies of fancy dolls of that era. They were pure white, with only a tiny bit of color in their eyes, lips, cheeks, and hair. They were originally made in Germany in 1850. Since they were made of porcelain without any cloth parts or stuffing, they were first marketed as children's bath toys, but their minimal coloring and immobile limbs soon inspired another interpretation. In 1843, the poet, Seba Smith, wrote a poem titled Young Charlotte. It was first published in the, in the Rover, a main newspaper on December 28, 1843, with a gruesome title, Corpse Going to a Ball. 
The ballad was based on the true story of a young woman who was frozen to death while riding with her boyfriend on New Year's Eve, an incident reported in the New York Observer in 1840. The poem was a cautionary tale about the dangers of vanity. Charlotte was a fashion-conscious, flighty young thing. She lived with her family in the mountains with no close neighbors, so she didn't have much opportunity to socialize. So when she was invited to a New Year's Eve party with her sweetheart, she jumped at the chance to show off her new silk gown, made to, made to the latest fashion, a low-cut low number which displayed her bare shoulders. She climbed into the open sleigh and settled herself for the ride to the party. Her mother tried to talk Charlotte into putting on a cloak, but the young lady refused. After all, no one would be able to admire her lovely, fashionable gown if she was covered up with a cloak. The 15-mile ride of the party was a cold, bitter journey. The night frigid, the night was frigid, and the wind whipped around the seats of the open sleigh. Several times, Charlotte's beau offered her the use of the warm bearskin robe he kept in the back of the sleigh. Each time she refused, as her voice grew fainter. As they neared the party, the boyfriend slowed the horse. He was concerned, as he hadn't heard a sound from her for the past half hour. At last, they reached the house where the party was being held. The boyfriend brought the sleigh to a stop and reached for Charlotte's hand to help her down. Her hand was icy cold. During the ride of the party, she had frozen solid. The small porcelain dolls, with their, immo their immovable white limbs, soon became known as frozen Charlottes. The dolls cost one penny, and they were ridiculously popular. Many were even sold with their own miniature coffin and shroud. That's something you're not likely to find in Barbie's townhouse. The Stratton Mountain Tragedy We have Seba Smith to thank for giving us another poem about a young woman freezing to death. The Snowstorm, written in 1843, was also based on a true story. In December 1821, Harrison Blake and his wife Lucy set off from their home in Salem, New York, to visit friends and family in Newfane and Marlborough, and Marlborough, Vermont, just over the Green Mountains. With them was their youngest child, still just an infant. Near Stratton, Vermont, the deep snow became impassable. Harrison made the fateful decision to leave Lucy and the baby with the horse and sleigh and travel on foot to find help. According to a newspaper account published a few weeks after the incident, Harrison was away so long that Lucy was searching for him. She lost her way in the snow and froze to death. Before succumbing to the cold, though, she took off her coat and wrapped the baby in it. Rescuers found the infant alive because of Lucy's foresight. The baby was later raised by her grandparents in Marlboro. Harrison, too, survived the ordeal, although he did suffer from frostbitten toes. The poem celebrated the mother's sacrifice, something near and dear to the Victorian mindset. Smith's poem was, poem was so popular that it was later reprinted in several editions of a 19th century child's reader. The Snowstorm by Seba Smith. The cold wind slept the mountain's height, and pathless was the dreary wild. And mid the cheerless hours of night, a mother wandered with her child. And through the drifting snow she pressed, the babe was sleeping on her breast. And colder still the winds did blow, and darker hours of night came on, and deeper grew the drifting snow. Her limbs were chilled, her strength was gone. Oh God, she cried in accents wild. If I must perish, save my child. The babe was sleeping on her breath. Oh, okay, sorry about that. She stripped her mantle from her breast and bared her bosom to the storm. And round the child she'd wrapped the vest and smiled to think her babe was warm. With one cold kiss, one tear she shed and sunk upon her snowy bed. At dawn, a traveler passed by and saw her neath the snowy veil. The frost of death was in her eye. Her cheek was cold. Her cheek was cold and hard and pale. Her, he moved the robe off of the child. The, ba the babe looked up and sweetly smiled. Well, that's depressing. All right. Well, that's going to do it today. I'm going to stop there. Uh, continue next Sunday with this book. Got a couple changes this week for you guys. I, I, you know, I hope you, I'm not saying enjoy this book because some of these things are sobering, but I, I hope you, you know, well, I guess enjoy the stories. I, you know, I don't know what else to say about it. Anyway, um, we're making a couple changes. I won't be available on Wednesday. So uh, Anna Marie Manalo uh, did a pre-recorded interview with me this morning. 
and uh, she will be the uh, guest on Wednesday, a pre-recorded interview. I have a family matter to take care of Wednesday evening, so she will be the the uh, guest Wednesday night. It's a pre-record, so I'll you know I'll, I'll have the links already for you. Tomorrow we have a great guest, Britt Eichenberger, who is a producer uh, director. He has a new documentary out about Bigfoot and uh, the paranormal things about Bigfoot. So uh, he's got that out, and uh, he'll be with us tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I won't be reading this week from the um, tradition book, but I will catch back up with that a week from Wednesday. Okay, I just want to let you guys know what the schedule is on this. But, uh, yeah, we've got a full week of guests coming up, including Sylvia Schultz, who wrote this book. She'll be on Thursday. Uh, Tuesday, Mary Muter will be with us to talk about the quantum brain. And uh, like I said, we've a full week. And of course, Friday, medium Nancy Matz and I have a special show set up for you guys. So I will see you on those days. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're, like, I, we're, like I always say, we're equal opportunity here at California House Radio. Just trying to build up our, our little old show. All right. Tell your friends about it. All right, well, I will see you tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, with uh, Brett Eichenberger. Sorry, I'm just kind of looking over here, looking over there. So uh, you know, we're going to be talking Bigfoot. So I will see you tomorrow. Have a great rest of your evening, guys. Bye. <laughs>